It's that time of year now, huh? I uh, hope you guys had a good week. Um, it's good to be back with you guys. I missed you guys a little bit. Thank you. We, uh, I, I was in Alabama uh, on a mission campaign trip. I'll share about that tonight. In case you're wondering, that's where these mums came from, and, and that'll make more sense tonight when I share about that. My wife, Kenzie and Ellie, they're uh, in Dallas right now on, after their first flight, and their, first, their next one will land about 10.30, 10.45. So if the preacher che- checks his phone while he's preaching, that's why. But other than that, it will be on church mode, I promise. So <clears throat> I'm looking forward to seeing them as well. Um, but, Doug, thank you for teaching last week. I know that was a new venture, wasn't it? <laughs> really? No one told me. They didn't have to. <laughs> um, well, it's good to see you guys. Let's start off this morning with prayer. Does one of our men want to pray for us? Usually I call you out, but any volunteers? Not all, Not all at once. Doug, go ahead. So, we've gone through quite a bit of things, I think. My goal is to end and turn things over in this class to David Bogard, first Sunday of November. So that's what I'm aiming for. Um, And this class that we're going to go through today, a little bit more difficult than the others. And so you'll have to forgive me if I kind of just go through it. And like I've offered before, I offer all my notes to you. If you want those, I'll send them to you exactly as I have them. But let's recap just a little bit. We, we haven't been together for three weeks now. We had gospel meeting, and then last week, Doug, and so while I was out. But things that we have looked at, just to kind of remind us, we talked about apologetics. That's what this class is. Making a defense in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, being a key verse in that. Be prepared to give a defense to anyone that asks you for the hope that you have. And we talked a lot about how our defense in apologetics is removing the debris of false narrative and false understandings about God and false arguments that really don't make a lot of sense. And so your defense, you're removing a lot of things, but you're also supplying a positive reason to believe in God. Here is the evidence, and here is why it makes sense logically, and here's how it lines up with science and history and scripture. But also we talked secondly then about truth. 
about how truth is true in all times, in all places, for all people. Or the literal definition of truth, or not literal, but one of our good ones, being that which corresponds to reality. Corresponds meaning it tells us what reality actually is. And truth is not a subjective matter of taste. Do we remember subjective versus objective? What is subjective? Feelings, biases, opinions, right? That's not a good way to define truth, is it? Because sometimes I may not like a truth, but if it's true, it doesn't matter how I feel about it, does it? So objective truth is what we're after. That which is grounded in facts, logic, and reasoning. And we discover truth. We don't invent it. We discover truth by removing subjectivity in ourselves and examining all the evidence. What is the most logical explanation of all the evidence combined? Then we talked about our existence. Where did we come from? And if you remember the argument, it's the argument very shortly is whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause, right? And we really defended premise two of the universe began to exist. We showed the evidence in science for how, yes, the universe is not eternal. eternal. Yes, it does have an end. And so it has a beginning, and since it has a beginning, it began to exist. Then we talked about the argument for design on top of that, how the universe and our world is very complex. I personally really like that one. The argument for design, very similar to uh, the previous one for existence. Every design has a designer. The universe has a complex design, therefore the universe must have a designer. And we looked at how complex the universe is, how things were finely tuned, things as well such as DNA, which when we examine our own DNA, we find we are not evolving as evolution, the theory of evolution would suggest, but we're actually in a way devolving, we're mutating instead. And so when we also study DNA, you see that there is no way that the time that is needed for evolution to take place could take place. We, we could not be millions of years old. We could only be four to six or 8,000 years old, which lines up perfectly with the biblical narrative. And last time, we studied or we looked at rapid cataclysmic events such as Mount St. Helens. Y'all remember that one, right? The explosion of Mount St. Helens and how that gave us a window into how that affects the world because evolution does not take into account rapid cataclysmic events. Whenever we looked at uh, Mount St. Helens, one of the coolest things there, there were more than a few key observations, but one of them was they took lava fragments that had solidified over time, became rock, you know, and they carbon dated them, and it said that this 10-year-old rock was 350,000 years old, even though we know it was 10 years old. So carbon dating can't be trusted, and we see that things like rapid cataclysmic events can affect the earth in ways that evolution does not take into account. And so today, the next argument, difficult one, it's one that you kind of have to sit with for a long time, uh, really to understand. I, I don't fully, I'm not say understand it, but maybe not fully appreciate it as much as I should. Um, but I do a whole lot more than when I first heard the argument. The moral argument being how do we really know or how do we actually know what's right and what's wrong? How do we even have this concept that there is a right or a wrong? We all have this internal mode or this compass, this moral compass, if you will, that defines right from wrong, right? So let me ask you this question. Who here really just 
loves puppies. I saw a picture of, of some Labrador puppies the other day. Wow, two people love puppies. How about that? Three. Okay, you puppy lovers. If I got a whole litter of puppies, bear with me for the illustration, got a whole litter of puppies, wrapped them up in a trash bag, lit the trash bag on fire, and threw it off a bridge, is that wrong? Yes. Who says? Well, you well, yeah, but why is that wrong? Who said that's wrong? Who wrote that down and said that it's wrong? It, we just have this natural sense that it's wrong? Uh, well, that's weird. Well, that's weird. What, where does this internal sense come from? Do you see what we're saying here? Part of the argument that, that atheists would make is, well, it's kind of biological over time. It becomes a chemical thing, a response that's needed for survival. But that really doesn't hold a lot of water because we have morals that the animal kingdom doesn't, don't we? And so the other argument is, well, it's just there. That's not a robust explanation. We're after what is most logical, what is the best grounded. And so we are trying to see that since we have this, this moral compass, which, by the way, I've, this comes a lot from what I've heard. There's many people that will talk about it. I love William Lane Craig's argument on this. And he makes it short, sweet, and simple and to the point. And he'd say that you can ignore that we had a beginning in the universe. You can ignore that there's design in the universe. You can ignore all these things. But every single day, you and I wake up and start making decisions on if people other than us have intrinsic value or not. You and I are making moral decisions every single day. This is something that is, that is unavoidable. So this argument is experienced It's daily in our lives. It's unavoidable. We're making choices. Let me show you this. This was a billboard from 2009, and it's been on other things. It's a humanist group, which is one of the uh, worldviews we talked about under the umbrella of atheism. It says, no God, no problem. And sometimes this would be tagged along with just be good for goodness sake. Saying be good just because for goodness sake. It's kind of like uh, the Santa Claus song, be good for goodness sake, right? The problem with the humanist slogan here is that if there isn't any God, why think that there is any good? If there is no God, why think that good and evil objectively exist? Why would we have any sense? If the argument we're making here, if there is no God, then everyone's morals are nothing more than opinion, and no one does wrong. Anything goes. That's what is taking place here. But yet they would still argue that, you know what, we don't need uh, God for, for this. And so the issue and the question that comes, can you be or do good without believing in God? Careful. This is a trick question. This is not actually the right question to ask. We know people that are not believers that do, quote, morally good things, right? Many of us have family members that are that way, that do good things. So that's not the question that we're answering. But that's what atheists and others who argue back and say, well, you're saying because I don't believe in God, I can't do something right? Or I can't do something good for someone else? No, 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 that's not what we're saying. The argument is... Is there any good? Can we be or do good without there being a God? This is about the existence of God. 
We all know there's people who are not believers in God who live good or decent lives. We know they don't believe in God, but we can clearly see they live good lives sometimes. The question is not the first one, but it's the second one. The issue is not about believing in God. It's about whether God exists. It's whether in the absence of God, there is such thing as objective good. Not subjective, remember, biases, opinions, and feelings, but objective, grounded in facts, logic, and reasoning outside of what we think about it. Is there such thing as objective good and bad? It's about whether there is any real difference between good and evil. If there were no God, then good and evil would not actually refer to anything, or they would have to be redefined to something that is conducive for human flourishing or harmonious living in society, basically natural selection like in the animal kingdom. Baboon scratches one baboon's back, the other scratches his back. Okay, that's good, that kind of thing. But we know the animal kingdom doesn't have morals, do they? But it's interesting when you, when you look at, since they don't, a cat kills a mouse. That's pretty natural, right? We don't say the cat murdered the mouse, do we? No. The cat didn't do anything wrong, killed the mouse, because that's what it does, and that's part of the circle of life. But if, sorry, David, if I kill David, I did something wrong. I murdered him. And so that's morally wrong for us, but in the animal kingdom, no, it's just what they do. They don't have morals, but you and I do. That's part of what sets us apart. And so part of our purpose here is to see that this natural sense of good and bad is in fact tethered or grounded to something outside of our own selves. What is the basis for the understanding that we have of right versus wrong or good versus evil? By the way, the existence of more values and duties provides a very good argument for the existence of God. Now, there's a lot here. Like I said, I'm just going to kind of go through this. Feel free to try to, to, to jump in if you'd like to, but I, I'm just going to go, okay? The moral argument for the existence of God implies the existence of a being that is the embodiment of ultimate good. And that's what we are arguing. And this argument goes back to Plato as well, and it's been finely tuned since then. But here's how the argument goes, very similar to our other ones. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. WLC, that's William Lane Craig, the, the apologist and debater. Objective moral values and duties do exist. That's premise two, premise three. Therefore, God exists. Very similar to our other ones, right? We're trying to keep this simple and, and memorable. People generally believe in both premise one and two. They just never really put the two together. And, you know, most young people are actually being taught in our world today, or rather they're trying to be taught by people, that there are no objective moral values, that everything is relative to society and culture. What's right in this society may not be right in that society. But as we dive into that, it's not going to make a lot of sense. But they, have, they do, though. They do have this value of tolerance so deeply ingrained into them. Can't we see that in our own culture? And so they're so definitely afraid of making a moral judgment about someone else. And you've got to tolerate everything. So they've been taught premise one, that if there is no God, everything is relative. And there are no objective moral values and duties. But the problem is, they actually don't believe that. Because of premise two, there are objective moral values and duties. They're deeply committed, for example, to the value of tolerance. They think it's wrong to be bigoted and narrow-minded and dogmatic, etc., so that they're very committed to the idea of tolerance, to the objective value of tolerance. They think that it's objectively wrong to be intolerant of any way of someone else. So they're so deeply committed to premise two 
which means I've got to be deeply committed to premise one. This really works well more in a debate kind of scenario, but also when you are presenting this, it might have a lot of good uses for our own uh, evangelism. Premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Now, there's two different words here we need to define. Moral, or sorry, values and duties. Values are whether something is good or bad, talking about worth. Duty is if something is right or wrong. There is a difference, and, and we might think that there is no distinction, but think about it in, in these kind of terms. You see, duty has to do with moral obligation, what you ought to do or what you ought not to do. There is an oughtness or a should involved with moral duty. However, we are not morally obligated to do something just because it would be good. Let me explain. It would be good to become a doctor and help the sick, wouldn't it? But that doesn't mean that each and every one of us are morally obligated to go through med school and become a licensed and practiced doctor, right? It would also be good to be a farmer or to be an architect, but obviously we can't do all of them. So just because something is good in that sense for me to do doesn't mean that we are obligated to do it. And this makes sense especially when we go and see different verses in scriptures such as James chapter 4 verse 17. Turn with me there. This one may already have been in some of y'all's minds as we're talking about this. James 4.17. <clears throat> this could be a fun one to, to have a whole Bible class on. It says, so whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails to do it, for him it is sin. <laughs> Short, sweet, to the point. What does that mean? Does that mean that I've got to do every single thing that would be good? No. The context here is about living for God. The context here is about doing the obligations that you and I signed up to do and said, this is the life I want to live as a Christian. You see, God in the New Testament, Jesus has laid out in the New Testament our moral duties, our obligations to fulfill as Christians. And so he's saying, you know, if, if you aren't doing those things and you're just waiting around, then you're not doing what you should be doing. You are sinning instead of living for God. That's the point that is being made here, I believe. And so, yes, there is a difference between the two. Good and bad have to do with some things worth. Right or wrong is about what is oblig uh, obligatory or forbidden. And so when we say that there are objective moral values and duties, we are asserting that, that certain things are good or bad, right or wrong, independently of what anybody thinks about it or how they feel about it. That's objective, right? It doesn't matter if everybody in the world disagreed and we believe something else. The moral values would still be true and real. That's what it means to say something is objective. And to say that we have objective moral values, that something is good or bad regardless if there is someone else that disagrees with it. There are, in fact, a thing such as morals. We know that something is right or wrong because we can kind of feel it in a sense. We have this internal moral compass, this internal guide. And you know what? Even failing to do the right thing is evidence of that. You can be mistaken about what is good and think you're doing the right thing, but later find out you did something wrong. And then what? How do you feel about it? You feel bad about it. And so you have this compass inside of us that even when we have a moral failure or, or a moral error, that actually helps reinforce the argument that there are moral values and duties 
And so people will start to talk about the concept of good and God being good. And here's this, this euphoria uh, dilemma. Here's a, a false question. It's a trick question, okay? Does God command a thing because it is good? Or God commands a thing, then it becomes good? Neither of these are right. There's a secret third option. Because all of this is saying that good is independent of God or God is independent of good. But the third option, the secret third option, and correct, is God wills something because He is good. God in the very essence of who He is, God in His very character is good. God's own character defines what is good. And so if the atheist asks you, for example, well, if God commanded that, that we should murder our children, we would be morally obligated to murder our children? That's a strawman argument. It doesn't make sense. The quest, that question is like asking, if there were a square circle, would its area be computed by squaring its sides? And you see, it's a meaningless question because there is no such thing as a square circle. It's logically impossible. There is no answer to the question whether the area of a square circle is computed by squaring one of the sides in exactly the same way to say, are we commanded to abuse children by God? Would we do it? It's a logical uh, incorrect to begin with and has no answer. So this, this dilemma is a false dilemma that presents us with false choices and you shouldn't be fooled by it. God wills something because He is good. They go together. They are the same. God is good. Premise 2. Objective moral values and duties do exist. And this is where just about every person in the world will agree. There are right and wrong. Now, we do have strong disagreements on what is right or wrong, don't we? But we all have a sense that there is right or wrong. The atheistic uh, naturalism view, one of our worldviews we talked about previously, says that morals are just an illusion. It's just a concept that we have come up with because it's what's conducive for, for humans to exist. And so science, you know, by the way, uh, sorry, let me back up. What exists is what our best scientific theories of the world require. That's what they're arguing. And if something is not required by our scientific theories of the world, then it does not exist. But you see, this is devastating for ethics with someone that is an atheist. Because if, if atheists uh, really believe this, this, this view of morality we experience in our lives is really just subjective illusion of human beings. And if you take God out of the picture, then the picture that we're left with seemed to be that we are just an ape-like creature on this planet who, is, uh, who just has grand delusions with moral grandeur. There aren't many atheists that will actually argue that honestly. And if they try, then their life actually tells you something different. There is this story... Uh, again, by William Lane Craig, who was debating this, this atheist, last name uh, Niche, I believe. And he would say, yeah, morals are just an illusion, and, and there really is no good and bad. But his life said something else, because there was this story, this true story of him, of, of someone beating a horse mercilessly, wrongly, animal cruelty, and he rushed over to intervene and say, this isn't right. And so his life said that there are morals. There is good and bad. And so the atheistic view truly, though at its core, is just that human beings are animals and animals don't have obligations towards one another. Just like how we talked about the cat killing the mouse or the lion killing a zebra. It doesn't murder a zebra. The lion kills a zebra, but it doesn't murder it. 
If God doesn't exist, well, then I think that we have, why think that we have any moral duties to fulfill? Or what, or where do these moral obligations come from? Or the prohibitions, where do they come from? If there isn't any moral law giver, then there isn't any objective moral law. All of these morals and the sense of direction has to be tethered to something. And so the next one, the uh, Platonism, I'm not going to get too into it. They just say it just exists. You know, that's not a very good argument. It's not very robust. But virtually all will agree that morals do exist. And these and others fail to give a robust answer as to why. I'd say about 90, 95% of people can be very quickly convinced that there are objective moral values and duties. If you just give them a few illustrations to make the point, for example... And these are very interesting, but they're very real. Ask them what they think. There is this this uh, Hindu practice called Suti. Has anyone heard of that? And this Hindu practice called Suti, it was put to halt by the British when they colonized India. And in Suti, they would take a or the widow of a man who had died, and they would throw her alive onto this funeral pyre, and she would be burned alive along with her husband. Is that good? But a whole culture accepted it as good. So shouldn't it be good? Oh, no. So then it's not relative to the culture. Then there is a ground for morality. Well, then what about uh, the ancient Chinese practice of, of binding the feet of little girls so tightly as to resemble a lotus blossom? And that's a cool thought, but at the same time, what they do is they permanently cripple these girls for life. Is it really a moral thing to do to a little girl? No. You can make the point even more effectively, probably, by using examples of, of self-professed Christians, such as the Crusades for some, uh, or also things that take place in the Catholic Church. If you're dealing with someone who is really honest and sincere, they will very quickly come to agree that there are objective moral values and duties. Now, of course, you'll find some hardhead, right? Some knucklehead who will bite the bullet and just deny it to the end. But the longer they sit with that position the more it seemed to be so extreme by most, they become repulsed by it the longer they sit with it. Our moral experience, we have a very good reason to affirm the reality of objective moral values and duties. And of course, Scripture lines up with that as well. Like we said, nearly all people will admit that objective morals do exist. Look with me in Romans chapter 2. This is just one of many places. Romans chapter 2, talking about the law, the law of Moses, and, and in Romans it's interesting, we got a little bit of a divide between the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's going to call them both out. Romans chapter 2, oh, say about verse 14, talking about the law of Moses. Now, Gentiles aren't necessarily taught the law of Moses, are they? No, they didn't grow up with it like Jews do, but there's some good things within the law of Moses, right? Not murder, that's a good thing to do. Not coveting, that's a good thing to do. Taking care of your fellow man, all of that. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, and they, and even though they do not have the law. He's saying people who haven't been taught this, saying here's these commands exactly from God, and here's how we know, here's how we saw it, they naturally do these things because there is a sense of morality to it. We wouldn't know right from wrong. 
That's true. And what does Isaiah 1.18 say? We analyze uh, different things and come up with a, with a truth. Right, right. And that's why God says there, come let us reason together. Let's see what the truth of the matter is. Let's see what is good to do. And so the argument then, as you go through it, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. That makes sense. And we do know clearly that objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God must exist. The, way, or the reason this argument is so good, it's logically uh, ironclad. It's supported by the failure of science where you can't measure morals in a test tube. And they can't provide another answer other than it's just there or it's an illusion. That doesn't make sense. And it lines up with Scripture. So there's another version of this by Norman Geiser. He says, every law has a lawgiver. There is a moral law. Therefore, there is a moral lawgiver. It's whichever way you'd like to remember it. I like this one, uh, but sometimes this one kind of comes out whenever I'm thinking about it. And so how do we know that moral law exists? Premise two, it's undeniable. We know it by our reactions, our moral experience. It is the basis of human rights, an unchanging standard of justice. We have this idea of justice in the world, and when we see injustice done, we know it's wrong. It defines a real difference between moral positions. What are two extremes? Two polar opposites. We could use just some big names and say two polar opposites. you got Mother Teresa over here and Hitler over there. We know there's a pretty clear difference, right? We can see that there's a big moral difference. And so it defines that there is a difference between positions. And since we know what's absolutely wrong, there must be an absolute standard of rightness. And if there were no moral law, then we would, wouldn't make excuses for violating it. We wouldn't have a problem with anyone doing anything wrong. We would be okay with people doing things exactly like what's done in the animal kingdom. And if you don't know, the animal kingdom is pretty harsh and gross and awful when you think about it and you observe it. But we as people know that there are certain things we can and can't do morally. We know that there is right and wrong. And so the biblical worldview, I'll give this to you guys if you want it. I'll, I'll print it out or I'll send it to you. There's a lot of verses here that talk about how we are made distinct away from the animal kingdom, how God has instilled this sense of right and wrong in us, and how we really can only get to know the ultimate good of God by following God and seeing that which is in his word, that we do have more obligations. Like I said, there's a whole lot there. But what are the possible uh, alternatives? Well, we just have them, right? Or it's a biological response. It's, it's relative. Every culture has their own set of standards. None of these really make sense when you press the argument, when you really chase it down and think about it and discuss it. They don't follow what you and I actually know to be true. And so on objective moral values, that's what OMV is, objective moral values, they are founded out of God's nature from which God's divine command, primarily the command to love, helps one to understand our obligation and instinctive willingness for things such as generosity and benevolence, equality, communal love, sacrifice, self-imposing acts of kindness and service, you remember when Jesus is teaching uh, his, his people how to pray? And he gives the example of persistently praying. And, 
and says, if your fa- ask your father for bread or food and he gives you a snake or a scorpion, that's not going to happen, right? Because even a father who doesn't believe in God knows instinctively and should act instinctively on doing good for his children and how much more so God. And this is all, of course, in opposition to greed and hatred and discrimination and abuse and selfishness. If there were no objective moral values, we could be as greedy as we wanted. We could, do, we could do harm to one another and just climb to the top of the pyramid with no sense of right or wrong and be good with it. And so this argument then, the moral argument is unavoidable in our daily lives. We are making moral decisions every single day. How am I going to treat this person? How am I going to talk to this guy? Or, or what am I going to do for my family? What am I not going to do for my family or against my family? We have a moral compass that tells us there is a good and bad for values and a right or wrong duties and prohibitions, things that we ought to do. Objective morals must be tethered to an objective good, which is God. And we also find an understanding of God himself in this argument, the fact that God is good. Pretty awesome. In the argument for existence, we find out about God, how powerful he is. In the argument for design, we find out how uh, highly intellectual God is with the ability to design everything so specifically and hold things together so accurately. And here we find how good God is. Thoughts or comments before we end? That's true. That's next. (laughs) Because next we're going to go to the historical side. This is where my favorite stuff comes in, which a lot of you have studied, I believe, and a lot of you know a lot about. So we're going to have a lot of good uh, discussion. And we got just a few minutes, so I'll just introduce this for us, uh, for you to think about as we get ready to, to talk about this next week. The rest of what we are talking about comes from historical Christian evidences for the rest of the class. Why do you call me good? Our goodness comes from God. Mm-hmm. Without God, there is no goodness. Right. You're right. Matthew? It's amazing you're seeing a relabeling of an atheist to now a humanist. Like, there's now officially almost no difference between them. Right. Because atheist has, there's been such a stigma with that name for so long. And they're like, oh, we're a humanist, and it just sounds so much more positive. Right, right. Right. It, it sounds more appealing. You know, we care about our fellow humans, right? Anybody else? David? Yeah, and chapter 5 is good for it. Building up this hostility to God down the bottom. It's like if you're under the law or the word Jew, excuse me. But if you're not, there's out there. You're still going to be judged because of what is your own standards in your own heart and your own head. So, you know, the whole the whole entirety of Romans 2 says it doesn't matter if you believe in God or don't believe in God. I've heard. And that brings to mind, remember when we were introducing apologetics, that the examples of 
people in Scripture making apologetical arguments. Paul, Acts chapter 17 on the Areopagus, one, he's making this incredible apologetic sermon of, I know the creator, I know the designer, I know all this. And there's a verse in there as well when he says, and that we should all feel our way towards him. So, yes, we do have this moral compass that's supposed to give us a sense of there is a greater good. Matthew. Oh, sorry, Rick. Well, I was just going to say there truly is no right unless there is a wrong. And why would the man who Darwin described as survival of the fittest, why would he come up with a wrong? All right. A right? Exactly. Why would yeah, why would we make a wrong? Why would man sanction or restrict himself? Yeah. stuff we got a couple minutes so let me just introduce this for us to think about um who has really dove into here historical apologetics christian evidences i know larry has because he had ed wharton for this class right who else has okay well maybe maybe i thought maybe i thought more highly of y'all no (laughs) um I, i love this stuff we've looked at science We looked at logic, and here we're going to look at history and logic. Um, Consider this quote. If it could ever be proven that Jesus was never alive in history, Christianity would collapse like a stack of cards. There are people who would argue that Jesus wasn't even real. He's just a myth, a legend. Sorry, did I hear something over here? Okay. But yeah, they would just argue that he's not really real. How do you know that Jesus was actually real? How do you know that he did the things that we see in Scripture? How do you know he fed 5,000 or 6,000 or 4,000? How do you know he walked across water? And so the purpose of what we're looking at is to examine the historical evidence that Jesus lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose, and the implications. These are all different parts of the argument that make the whole. Because each one of these are important. Somebody could push back and say, well, okay, maybe he lived. But you know the problem, Danny? He didn't really die. He just kind of swooned on the cross, and and it seemed like he was dead. Well, okay, how do we know he actually died then? What's the evidence? Well, and you know, he didn't actually rise from the grave. What happened was they they got the the tomb mixed up. They went to the wrong tomb, and this one was already empty. And so they, they said, well, he's not here. He must have rose. So how do we know that he actually rose? And what are the implications of it? Well, consider this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's turn there real quick. This is where we'll end. 1 Corinthians 15. Why does this matter? We've got a good section of Scripture here to read. Y'all okay if I read it? None of y'all are going to complain about that, right? <laughs> First Corinthians 15, 12. Through 20 it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are out of all people most to be pitied. That's a tragic picture, isn't it? You're most to be pitied because you're living this 
this passive life that is amounting to nothing while others take advantage and do whatever they want in the world. You're living this life for nothing. But, in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so we see the importance of the resurrection of Christ, right? And we see the necessity to be able to defend it. And this, as we get into this, is even more accurate with what Paul's statement was in 1 Peter 3.15. Be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope. What's the hope? The hope of the resurrection. The hope that you have in Christ Jesus. So, I'll say this as well. This will be the last comment. You don't need everything else that we talked about. You really don't. The rest of that was kind of for funsies. But at the same time, there are certain people that won't listen to any of this. They want the science. They want all that. Okay, we've got to meet them where they are. But the Bible does not need anything else other than the Bible to prove itself is right. And we're going to see that. Thoughts before we close? All the witnesses and all the logical evidence, how it is, in fact, a historical, reliable, reliably historical document. All right, good. Um, Brian, would you pray for us?